The book of Esther has all the necessary components of a great story. It has charismatic characters, including an egotistical playboy prince, a narcissistic megalomaniac enemy, a humble hero, a brave heroine, Hadassah, Esther of the Jews. As far as the setting goes, the story takes place in the dark domain of Susa, the seat of Persian power, the dark tower of Mordor itself, right? Moreover, it is difficult to imagine a more volatile plot with the exiled Jews facing complete annihilation, sitting in the ashes, fasting and mourning, and then being miraculously rescued through an unexpected turn of events. The conflict, which involves the Persian Empire, revolves around the showdown between Mordecai and Haman, which, as you know and saw last week, ended with Haman's execution upon the very gallows he had planned for Mordecai. And so we come now to the final part of every good narrative, the resolution, a full reversal that brings the Jews from fasting to feasting. For those of us who find ourselves in our own forms of exile and suffering, Esther chapter, chapters 8 through 10 remind us that God never forgets his people. He never forgets his people. In his own timing, God exchanges his people's sackcloth for royal robes, their, princely, their ashes for princely places, their sorrow for gladness, and their mourning for a holiday. The resolution also teaches us how to celebrate the great reversal we have already experienced in Christ. There are promises yet to come, but still, our great enemy has fallen and our salvation is secure. And now we can rejoice and celebrate instead of living in perpetual mourning. God has overturned our hopeless predicament and promises to bring us to his kingdom stable in the end, where we, as the Jews of Purim foreshadow, will feast forever on the savory dishes and sweet wine of God's goodness. So we come now to the end of Esther's narrative. Chapter 8 opens with the king bestowing the, the house of Haman to Esther and, all, and the all-important signet ring to Mordecai, that signet ring that Haman had used to try to seal the fate and the death of the Jews is now given to his most hated enemy. Everything Haman took pride in is essentially stripped from him and handed over to the man he hated the most. This is certainly the beginning of a great reversal, but nothing has been done yet about the edict. The Jews are still in very grave danger. They are still facing annihilation if the people of the kingdom come and destroy them and annihilate them and plunder their possessions. In the final stages of the narrative, Esther falls before the king to beg for the lives of her people, pleading with him to revoke the letters that were sent by Haman. And I think we should pay attention to the king's answers. In verse 7, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring for an edict in the name of the king, and sealed in the king, with the king's ring, cannot be revoked. 
In other words, Esther's request is impossible to grant. In the previous chapters, the king had offered Esther whatever she requested, even up to half his kingdom. It would be easier for him to give up half his kingdom than to do what she now asks. The edict is irrevocable. It cannot be turned back. Once an edict is signed in the king's name and sealed with his signet signet ring, it is essentially law from there on out. Nobody can overturn it, not even the king. The best that can be done is to write a counter edict that might somehow lessen the effect of the first edict or discourage those who received the first edict from obeying it. This is essentially what Mordecai and Esther did. Together, they draft an irreversible edict of their own, allowing the Jews to gather and defend themselves. Haman's edict commanded the citizens of every province to destroy, kill, and annihilate the Jews and to take their possessions as plunder. Well, now this second edict says that those who attempt it are going to have the same that they give. They will be annihilated. They will be destroyed. They will face death and any potential plunderers will be plundered by the Jews. The edict written in the king's name and written with the king's signet ring and delivered by the king's horses was sent out to all 127 provinces on the third month, which is Sivan, which gives the Jews roughly nine months to prepare. By the time that the month of Adar comes, their swords are sharpened, their shields are polished, they're ready to face their enemy. So, We have an edict versus an edict. Which edict is going to win? We have an edict for the destruction of the Jews and an edict saying that the Jews can defend themselves, but it's still up in the air. Which one will exactly win? Which one will come out as the victor in the end? Time will tell. For now, Mordecai has done his duty. He has sent out an edict allowing the Jews to pick up arms and to defend themselves and before the end, he is, he is, uh, Mordecai is honored once more. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Mordecai had set aside his sackcloth for good. He was sitting in the ashes. He was covering himself in ashes. And now he wears a glittering crown. This is his complete reversal. He'll never wear sackcloth again. In this narrative, he has gone from ashes and sitting in in the gate to sitting on the throne with the king and wearing a crown and the king's signet ring. But he's not the only one that enjoys the effects of the great reversal. In Esther chapter three, the city of Susa was thrown into confusion with the first edict. This second edict brings the city to shout and rejoice. In place of fasting and mourning, the Jews now have light and gladness and joy and honor. It's not all that difficult to imagine why they would be so happy and glad, right? Imagine if an edict went out demanding your life and the lives of your family, and that every man, woman, and child in your family would be killed and destroyed. And now comes another edict allowing you to defend yourselves and protect your family. It is a a reason for joy. In Esther chapter 2, Mordecai had commanded Esther to keep her Jewish identity a secret. You see, to be outed as a Jew back then in exile was a very dangerous thing. 
It could lead to death. It could lead to persecution. It could lead to all kinds of mistreatment. And so she was to keep her Jewishness a secret. But now we get to Esther chapter 8. Everybody suddenly wants to be Jewish. All the normal people of the kingdom, all the Persians, are now claiming some kind of Jewish descent to save themselves. You see the flip-flop? Those who were afraid, this would be essentially like it would be in World War II, right? Where you're trying to hide your Jewish descent, you're trying to, uh, to cover up, change your facial features even, or whatever it is, to try to, to cover up the fact that you are Jewish. And then at the end of the war, Nazis proclaiming that they're Jewish so that they don't have to be tried for hate crimes. This is essentially what's happening here. The Persians who were going to kill them because of their Jewishness are now saying, we're Jewish, don't kill us. The king's irrevocable edict is overturned because God always remembers and keeps his promises. Do you realize the king said this edict cannot be reversed because once an edict is signed and sealed with the signet ring, it is permanent, irrevocable. And in Esther, we now have a glimpse of what it looks like when God makes something irrevocable, revocable. When God makes something irreversible, reversible. You know, we're taught, unfortunately, from a young age, that there are some things in life that are irreversible. Even one of our most popular nursery rhymes, chants of Humpty Dumpty who fell off the wall, right? And all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty back together again. You guys all know that rhyme, that, that what was it, Mother Goose who made that, whoever she was? The lesson's simple in that rhyme. Some things in life get so broken they cannot be fixed. Some of you have lived long enough that you may absolutely agree with that. Some things in life get so broken that they cannot be fixed. But the good news of the Bible calls us to revisit that thought. Is that actually true? Is it true that there are some things in life that shatter into so many pieces that they can't be put back together again? Is Humpty Dumpty actually teaching us the truth? You see, if, if there was no God, and if God was not good, then Humpty would be teaching us a merciful truth. Give it up. Some things in life get so broken they cannot be repaired. But... As it is, we do have a God, and he is good. And he's not only promised to fix the irreparable, he's going to fix the irreparably broken world and everyone in it that trusts in him. God can fix the unfixable. You see, all the king's men, the king himself, may not be able to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, but God can. In fact, he can make a whole new Humpty Dumpty. He might be shattered into millions of pieces. Things may be beyond return. He may never again be the same Humpty Dumpty. And yet, because God is a God of power and glory and righteousness and goodness and mercy, Humpty Dumpty can have wholeness and health once more. You may feel as if your life has been so irrevocably broken. Things have gotten to a point where they cannot be reversed. Esther calls us to remember that the good news of the gospel is 
that ultimately nothing is irrevocable except what God himself makes irrevocable. Only the word of God does not return void, which includes every good promise he has made to his people. Do you realize that in God's goodness, not even death itself, not even death itself is irrevocable. Can you imagine how much peace that might bring you when you're laying in bed at night and you feel that little twinge of pain in the chest? That, that you, you, you feel like you're facing this irreversible future, that you've come to the end. And suddenly the good news is whispered into your ear once again, even if that were true, even if the finality of death came, the irreversibility of death knocked on your door today, God reverses the irreversible. Esther gives us and breathes into us this great hope. Now, one would think that the surprising events in Ahasuerus' court with Haman being executed and Mordecai being raised to his place would have discouraged anyone from following through with Haman's edict. If Prince Haman could not oppose Mordecai without a humiliating fall, then who else would have had a hope of success? As it is, there were some who stubbornly refused to turn back. We read about this in chapter 9. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Now you see the Old Testament is replete with this kind of notion that those who attempt to harm the innocent, the humble people of God, will fall victim to their own devices. That it will turn back on their own heads. The reversal that occurred in Susa is just one example of how God protects his humble people from their arrogant oppressors. The edict that was meant to lead to their genocidal massacre led to a humiliating defeat of their enemies and subjected the whole kingdom to the fear of the Jews. And it says, and no one could stand against them. Now those phrases, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples, and no one could stand against them, are important echoes of what we see in the earlier scriptures. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 25, God promises no one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and dread of you on all the land that you shall tread as he promised you. Now what's the point of that echo? Why is the author of Esther so deliberately pointing back to what occurred in the conquest? I think it's simply this. God has not abandoned his promise. The promise to Abraham remains firm. You see, in the, in the ancient world, to be outside of your homeland means to be outside the jurisdiction and the protection of one's homeland gods. So according to the ancient worldview, Israel's outside of Israel. Therefore, they have no protection from Yahweh. They are left vulnerable and exposed. But as the fear of the Persian people demonstrates, this is not the case. God is with them just as much in their exile as he was in their conquest. He made fear fall on the Canaanites as they entered the land. Now he makes fear fall on the Persians to keep them from harming his people. He is with them in their exile. 
just like he was in their entrance into the land. I think this should give us hope in our own lives. Even the most mature believers can sometimes fall prey to the false notion that bad times mean that God has turned his back on us. Has, has anyone ever, else ever felt that way before? Just at a moment of lowness that, that maybe the demotion or the loss of funds, the, the, the health problems, whatever it is, that God had somehow turned his back on us or for some reason turned away from us. I think Esther teaches us to reject this thought. God is with his people in both the promised land and in the exile, while they rest at home and when they are unjustly dragged off to the king's harem, when they sit in princely places and when they sit in ashes. You see, he's with us in our downsizing as much as he is in our promotions, in our new home closures and in our foreclosures. When we breathe the fresh mountain air, or when we fight for every breath on our deathbed. God never abandons his people. His promises remain firm. Life may not always be a conquest. It may not always feel as if the Canaanite people are falling before us. We may be living in exile in Persia, and yet the reality is is that we are still more than conquerors. Why? Because nothing is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wherever you are, you may be in exile at this moment. You may be in some form of suffering. You may be in some form of hardship. Your health may be ticking away and your mind might be on death. Or you may be on the reverse. You may be living it high. You have lots to be thankful for. God is with you at both ends of life. And God never abandons you, high or low. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Now, God's presence with the Jews in Persia is ultimately proven in their enemies' failed attempt to destroy them. Now, think of how ironic it would be if all this had happened and the the enemies of the Jews still killed them all. God won't let it happen. He overturns it. Some still gathered and attempted to finish Haman's work. But they broke against the Jews like water breaks against a rocky embankment. It didn't succeed. It turned back on their own heads. In fact, the destroyers were destroyed, 500 of them, in fact, along with Haman's sons. You see, in the Bible, sons tend to sympathize with their father's hatred, with a few exceptions, of course. Haman carried on the hatred of his forefather, Agag, and so it can be assumed that his sons would attempt to carry on the same work that he began. Now, there's a few things to note about Haman's, the death of Haman's sons. First of all, their deaths are yet another reminder that pride leads to an ironic and terrible end. In Esther chapter 5, verse 11, Haman bragged to his friends and his wife about the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and his promotions in the king's court. Isn't it kind of funny how all of those things he took pride in were taken away? His promotions given to Mordecai, his riches given to Esther, and his sons hung on the gallows. I think this shows us the irony of reversal. The object of our pride often serves either one to destroy us or two to elevate someone else. That's the irony of it. Whatever you take pride in, is typically going to be the smoking gun in the end that humbles you. 
whatever you take pride in may just be the dagger that you slip and fall on. We see it over and over again in the scripture. Goliath, proud of his armor, big dude, big bronze armor, heavy, killed by a little bitty stone. His armor stripped off of him and placed in the tent of the boy that he had mocked. The very thing he took pride in becomes the thing that becomes proof of his humiliating fall. Saul, as another example, boasted in strength of arms. He often was counting his soldiers and sharpening his swords and holding on to his spear. In fact, he was one of only two people in all of Israel that had a sword. He trusted in his sword. And yet at the end of 1 Samuel, he ends up falling on his sword, the symbol of his pride. We see it over and over again in our day where a man works endlessly at his job, claiming that he's trying to provide a good life for his family and then ends up in the end finding out he lost his family because of his job. It's the things that we take pride in that tend to be the proof, the evidence of our humiliating fall. My friends, I don't think we see the danger of pride clearly enough. Pride comes before the fall. Oftentimes, what you have pride in is the thing that trips you. Second, the death of Haman's sons is a subtle fulfillment of the harem, the commandment for destruction of the Amalekites that God had commanded Saul. God remembered how the Amalekites fought Israel when they came out of Egypt and swore vengeance. Justice was to be poured out on Amalek in 1 Samuel 15, but full justice was delayed because Saul disobeyed. You will remember that he left Agag alive and somehow Agag survived and was able to allow his name to carry on. He was eventually killed by the prophet Samuel, but somehow the name Agag lived for more generations because we get to Haman the Agagite who restores and renews the hostilities. His death and the death of his sons finalizes the command that God had given all the way back in Exodus. You see, when the Amalekites had opposed his people, God swore to punish them for their hatred and hostility against his people. It's not until generations later that that justice is finally poured out. Vengeance was served. You see, the Persian king may make irreversible edicts. God can revoke his edicts, but no one can revoke God's. When God swore punishment, it came just the same. Nobody could stop it. Friends, it may at times seem to us as if God's justice is delayed, as if he is being slow. But scripture reminds us that his justice will be served in the end. God's people will be vindicated and their enemies will fall, even if that fall takes generations to come. God remembers the sufferings of his people. He remembers the inappropriate touches of that family member. He remembers the slight comments of that bully. He remembers the tyranny of that boss. He remembers the wounds inflicted by that man who promised to love you forever. He remembers, he knows, and vengeance is the Lord's. 
he will repay. God's word is irreversible. His promises never return void. Esther shows that in God's faithful providence, the enemies of God's people always fall to their own devices. We see this at the cross, don't we? The greatest visual representation of the great reversal. Jesus died. That was terrible. Jesus died. And it should have meant his death and our eternal sadness. But as it is, his death actually led way to our eternal gladness because it was through death that the one who had the power of death was destroyed. Hebrews 2.14, since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery by death, destroying the one who had the power of death. The one who had the power of death swallowed him up, should have been a victory for the evil one, ended up being to him poison. The serpent bit the hill, but found himself underneath the sun's foot. Pride comes before the fall. Through the death, of the holy one, the innocent one, came the destruction of the one who held the power of death. The destroyer is finally destroyed. That same principle that we find in Esther applies to us. Our great enemy has fallen by his own device. Our great enemy who wanted nothing more than our destruction has been destroyed, his head crushed. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. Now, seeing that we, because of the cross, like the Jews in Persia, have experienced such a great reversal, how should we respond? When the Jews are saved, their salvation is followed with celebration. Mordecai recorded all that happened and obliged all the Jews to remember the 14th and 15th day of Adar year by year. Now, that, that record, that writing might very well be the book of Esther itself. It's quite possible Mordecai may have been the one to write it. So he writes it, he sends it out, and he tells him to commemorate the days because it was on this day that the Jews got rest from their enemies. It was the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday. Now it's important to note the passive phrase, turned for them. You know, some people say that God is nowhere in the book of Esther. This pregnant passive, someone did the turning. A sovereign someone, though he remains unnamed, was responsible for overturning the king's edict. And it was because of this salvific turn of events that the Jews were commanded to remember his salvation forever. In this remembrance on these days, they were to make them days of feasting and gladness. Days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. The heart of the command is simply this. Can you imagine how difficult this would have been to obey? Eat. Be happy. Ask each other for your Amazon wish list. That's essentially what he tells them to do. It would have been completely inappropriate to fast and mourn during Purim. It's not the time to fast. 
It's not the time to mourn. It's not the time to wear ashes. It's a time for feasting. It's a time to eat and give. Now, this feastal celebration instructs us on how we should respond to the reversal that we have received. We have enjoyed an even greater salvation from an, from an enemy who is far greater, far stronger than Haman, and therefore have greater reason to rejoice and be glad. We may not yet be at the kingdom's feastal table. Nevertheless, we have due cause for celebration. Now, who's this for? All you sourpuss Christians. There are times that fasting and mourning are inappropriate. We have many good reasons to fast and mourn. In fact, there are times that we should fast and mourn. Fasting and mourning is a part of a faithful life, but so is feasting. We sometimes get imbalanced, right? One of the things I found in being a lead pastor for about six to seven years now has been how hard it is to keep God's people happy. Nothing major may be going on, but we're just not happy people. We have a reputation for it. We tend to wear faces that makes the queen herself look joyful. Esther reminds us that there are times that we should rejoice and be glad and to be happy and to allow that happiness to exude all of life. You see, it's not self-indulgence to enjoy the good gifts of God. In fact, we honor God by remembering that the reason we truly enjoy that first cup of coffee in the morning, that smoked turkey on Thanksgiving, or those gifts on Christmas morning, is that God has demonstrated his sweet love toward us in Christ. There's a reason you can hold that cup up, smell it and smile, sip and pray, Bible reading and coffee go together in joyful marriage, turkey and spiritual disciplines go one and the same. There's a time for feasting. Because you see, all these things that we have, all these good gifts, we know scripture says every good gift comes from the Father above. All these good gifts are just little appetizers, delicious appetizers that reorient our hearts to crave the real entree, the presence of God. My friends, do you give yourself freedom to be happy? Do you give yourself freedom to rejoice? There's a time to count calories and there's a time to not. There's a time to say no to cake and there's a time to say yes to the pumpkin pie. My friends, as a pastor, just giving you freedom to be happy people, glad people, your great enemy has fallen who cares if the coffee is weaker than you'd like? Who cares if they didn't paint the wall your color that you chose? Your great enemy's fallen, and you have life and life abundantly. Eat, drink, and be merry to the glory of God. There's a reason scripture says, 
taste and see the Lord is good. So therefore, friends, taste and see the Lord is good and bask in his goodness. I think if we're going to be faithful Christians, we will obey the command to feast. They didn't just feast, though. They gave gifts to the poor. It's interesting how they gave gifts to each other. They baked food for each other. I mean, just like Christmas for us, right? It's a time for rejoicing and gladness and feasting and also to exchange gifts. Tonight, if you come, hopefully you'll bring Christmas cookies. We can pass around Christmas cookies like they're poker chips. That's fine. And we can enjoy the goodness of God through them. Here's what that giving served, though. That giving served the purpose to remind all that God had stood up for the poor. God had raised the poor from the ashes like he did with Mordecai. And therefore, they gave gifts to the poor to remember what he had done for them. They replicated his grace. They replicated the the goodness that he had given them. Have you ever thought that your life's goal now that you have been saved is to rejoice and to daily replicate the grace you've been given? When was the last time you gave somebody a visible representation of God's love? You see, God's love is prevalent in all of life. It should be readily seen. We see it in the blowing of the wind through the trees. We see it uh, in, our, in the eyes of our kids. We see it in the arms of our loved one. We see it, but we don't always see it. We don't always feel it. How good it is then for God's people who have experienced such a great salvation to be daily walking around, giving each other visible representations that there is a God who loves us and who knows no end to his goodness. My friends, there's not a month that goes by that I do not receive an encouragement card from sweet Sidna. Oftentimes with a Reese's on the inside. (laughs) Oftentimes with the phrase that says, you're sweet, I'm sweet, here's a Reese's to remind you of that. My friends, that is what we're called to in life. Rejoice and replicate the goodness of God for others. When it's time to feast, we must lay aside the sackcloth of our mourning to remember God's good salvation. Look for opportunities to give representations of God's invisible love to each other. Stand with the poor. Stand by the poor. Stand up for the poor. God exalts the poor from the dust. Don't be the arrogant oppressors who ignore them. Be those who give and give graciously to those who need it. You are not doing a small insignificant chore by buying household items for refugees. You're not doing something that's easily forgotten by God and buying presents for the angel tree kids. That is a clear representation of God's love. And it is one of the main things you're called to do as God's people. Fast and mourn when it's time to fast and mourn. Cry and weep in the graveyard. Be mournful in the hospital room. But feast in your heart always. Because Jesus, your great king, has reserved a place for you at the kingdom's table. He's given you new royal robes so that you could lay aside your sackcloth. He's laid a crown of royal priesthood on your head so that you are no longer the poor, but you are royalty in his court.
We may not see the feastal kingdom table yet, but our place is secure there. Our name is reserved. Now Esther ends, and we have to end with this ending. Esther ends with a short three-verse chapter. <laughs> I sometimes wonder, what in the world were you doing? Because there was a good, it was a good ending. They're eating, they're celebrating. The image of all these Jews kind of bloated and full and smiling was a good ending. Why do we need more? He, he apparently felt like it was necessary that you know that after all these things, the king imposed the tax. He doesn't tell us what tax it was. We have no details about the tax. Just simply that the king imposed the tax on all the people from coast to coast. And then he wants you to know, oh yeah, and Mordecai was second in the kingdom. Those may seem like insignificant details, but they tell us a lot. First of all, nothing has changed in Persia. The Jews have been saved, but King Ahasuerus is very much the same self-indulgent prince he's always been. He's probably imposing a tax so he can throw more drunken wine parties for himself, right? I mean, that, he had bottomless wine at the last half of year celebration to himself. I'm sure he's going to have to replenish that money somehow. He lost to the Greeks at this point. He's angry about it. He's lost all kinds of money, can't pay his soldiers. His kingdom is in disrepair. So what does he do? He, he thinks it's appropriate to then apply a tax. Same selfish king. Nothing's changed with Ahasuerus. He's the same Xerxes. So who's to say that Haman, another Haman, won't come into the court again? Well, we can trust that he won't because of Mordecai's exalted status. For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. The book ends on a happy note. Mordecai stands in the king's presence, and he is the intercessor for his people. I think what an appropriate ending, a trajectory straight to Jesus. In this, the book points us to an even greater intercessor who mediates before the throne for our blessing and peace. He's like Mordecai, who was humble and was sitting in the ashes of death and then was exalted to the right hand of God. Unlike Mordecai, he is second in rank to none, but is the one who's been given a name above every name. Unlike Mordecai, he does not intercede before a human king. He is the king who intercedes before the throne of God above for our behalf, on our behalf. Mordecai eventually died. There's some historical record of a guy named Marduka, which very well could have been Mordecai. He's dead. They haven't seen him since. And after he died, the Greeks came and Antiochus Epiphanes became the next new enemy. And then after him were the Romans. Mordecai saved the Jews at this point, interceded for the Jews at this point in history, but he would die leaving that gap void in the future. Jesus died. He rose again and will never die again. Not only that, he has defeated an enemy who will never raise his head again. The devil has been destroyed. Now, yes, he's still writhing in pain and still snipping and biting, but like Pilgrim's Progress shows, he's a lion that's been chained. Toothless lion 
who has no sting, no victory, no pain for us anymore. In, according to 1 John 5, 18, he cannot touch you because Christ protects you. My friends, we then have a better Mordecai in Jesus who rules and reigns on our behalf for our good and peace. And in that, we can take heart even if we are in exile. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. With Christ, my Savior, and my God. And with that, we end Esther. Father God, we thank you for the truth you've given us in this Old Testament book. Father, I pray that we have seen Jesus clearly and that we will worship him with glad and joyful hearts. Let us feast on his grace. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.